We have been using First uh, Peter as a guide for this election year theology. And as I said at the outset, and some of you uh, the class is new to, I'm not telling you in any way, shape, or form how to vote. But I am trying to develop a Christian theology upon which one would make decisions, political decisions, all sorts of social decisions. First Peter was written, we think, in about the mid-60s was hand-delivered by his co-worker Silas, which was the mission trip of all mission trips, because that would have been several thousand miles by foot, by boat, up through the Black Sea, and then down through Asia Minor. It's the only epistle in the New Testament that we know of that was written to rural Christians. All the other epistles are directed to urbanites, this one was directed to herdmen's, farmers, woodworkers, agricultural of all sorts. And one of the things I like especially about that is that there's no intellectual dumbing down whatsoever. This is a beautiful, wonderful, woven piece of theology and ethics that is given to the early church there in Asia Minor. Silas undoubtedly had a hand in writing it too, um, because the Greek is very polished. So I think it's a wonderful work between Peter and Silas, and Silas being the missionary that delivered Peter's words. I'm still uh, quoting the passage of Scripture in my outline. Always hopeful, I'll reiterate it here, that when all the adventures bring Bibles, I can stop doing that. <laughs> Because I usually want to refer to more scripture than I quote. Um, so we have verses 11 through 25, but uh, this is kind of midway. We're getting to the heart of Peter's argument or his edification. Uh, but he's already laid down that we have been born again to a living hope. And we've received the promise of an inheritance that cannot spoil or fade in any way, that this salvation has been long planned. It's part of the drama of God's uh, salvation history. And so there's been hope, and then holiness, and then a household of faith. That first paragraph there in the right column, having laid down a solid foundation on hope, holiness, and the household of God, Peter turns to the critical and practical issues of how Christ's followers are going to relate to culture. It's a wonderful Christ for culture epistle. But there's been a, a theological foundation, and that's what we've discussed in these last few weeks. And so now we come to the 11th verse of chapter 2. Dear friends, now these friends have been to this point called chosen outsiders, resident aliens, elect exiles, foreigners. And that, that uh, nomenclature, that way of defining, indicates why we've chosen this as election year theology. Because Peter's thesis is this. To people in their own home culture, using their own language, doing the work they've always done vocationally, Come to receive Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, and overnight they become foreigners. They become exiles. 
They become strangers in their homeland. And as I shared with you, I think in Ghana, this is a more dramatic transfer. <laughs> because overnight, the taboos and the customs and, and the superstitions and the animism and all of that from the experience in northern Ghana, the Virginia and I have experienced, that changes. You're now really part of a new tribe. My first eight months of teaching were in Taiwan, uh, was in Taiwan. And uh, I was single. I lived with rookie Chinese teachers in a cement block building on a two-inch slab straw. That's what they that's how they lived. That's how I lived. I taught in a science and engineering college, world religions and Christian apologetics and had Bible studies on the side at the invitation of a very thoughtful Christian president for the school who had visited our home in western New York. And I was there about two weeks and the police called me to come in and to be interviewed. I'm just a kid just graduated from college and uh, I go in and, and they were very formal and very serious and uh, this is uh, in the late uh, well this is in the mid 70s and they wanted to be assured that I wasn't a troublemaker this is a very kind of rural Chinese community Zhongli it wasn't Taipei they wanted to make sure that I was not going to cause trouble. And it was kind of their way of putting me on notice that I was a guest in their country. I'd like you to have a little bit of that feel as a Christian living in Birmingham. A little bit of the feel of, of being kind of on notice as a Christian. This, this really is foreign turf. The culture is foreign turf for you now in terms of being salt and light, being for Christ, living out the Sermon on the Mount, living out this new hope. And there's so much more we could say about that. And one of the things I regret is that I, I don't really open this time up for a lot of dialogue. I don't quite know where to begin with that um, because I think then I need an hour or so with you um, and you with me. The first time I went to Mongolia, um, I went six times um, with, and it was all started by a Chinese friend of mine. We called him in Denver the Asian Invasion. Um, tall, six foot tall uh, Chinese uh, fellow who came to Christ in Hong Kong and, uh, and then a major contractor, construction worker, leading construction projects on three continents and living in London, went to John Stott's Kingdom Weekend and was just, he had been a really strong Christian, but suddenly he realized that how much more of his life could be used for kingdom purposes. Dramatic weekend. His, his wife, Grace, calls it that fateful weekend because everything changed after that for them. And uh, Dan came into my office one day in Denver and he said, I, I got a project for you. Uh, can you write a curriculum for a Bible school and give it to me in a week? Well, that one thing led to another, and the two of us went to Mongolia. Mongolia was just opening. It was in the 90s. It was, the door was just kind of cracked open for a very strict communist country. 
And uh, he had arranged with the mayor for a lecture hall in the community center. So we did that. We lectured for a morning. The next day, the police came uh, and told us to get out of the building. And if we wouldn't get out of the building, we'd be arrested. Well, we had 30 new Christian Mongolian students. So uh, it looked like there was no other way to reason with them. We left the building, and I lectured. It was 35 degrees out, not too bad for Mongolians. Um, and I, we spent a couple hours outside lecturing, where Dan went to back to City Hall to see the mayor, and the next day we were back in the room, uh, the lecture hall. All that to say is there's a certain foreignness about working in those two situations, Taiwan and Mongolia. I would like our college students to go to university feeling somewhat the strangerhood of following Jesus Christ. I'd like to feel I'd like them to feel it in terms of purpose, in terms of language, in terms of relating, in terms of caring, in terms of fun, in terms of recreation, in terms of sports. I'd like them to feel that strangerhood because of Jesus Christ. Well, it's about time we should read the passage. That was just dear friends. <laughs> dear friends, I urge you. It's the first time he uses the first person singular. I urge you. I, you know, where does that Romans 12? I beseech you by the mercies of God that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice. It's that same sort of urge, language, beseeching. I beseech you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. One of the things we've been saying is Peter does not base on the culture. This is a this is not a God honoring culture that he's a part of by any stretch of uh, both in terms of its overall Romanist Roman control, but also on the ground in its animistic religions. But he doesn't talk about how bad the culture is. He talks about how good the Christian needs to be. It kind of alleviates, for me anyways, as I think of that, it alleviates the burden of having to go around condemning the culture all the time because I'm offended by it. Okay, it is what it is. Now, what do we do? How do we live for Christ? How do we have that sort of equilibrium that God would give us, that sense of shalom? The fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, goodness. How can that be manifest? Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong, and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. 
honor the emperor. And then he goes on to talk about, he's going to talk about slaves. Well, he talks about subjects, slaves, and women. Three categories here. The political, the social, vocational, and then the home life. And the operative word in all three of these spheres is submission. A word that Americans instinctively dislike on all levels. So having built the theology on the hope, on the holiness, on the household of faith, God's chosen people, his royal priesthood, his holy nation, now turning to how do you engage the culture? And here in a line summarizes, for me anyways, what Peter is after. The apostles who turned the world upside down look for a bottom-up profile of genuine faithfulness. I think it's beautiful that he turns to subjects, slaves, women, and husbands as a model for how you live the Christian life. He takes the ordinary structures of society and he says, there, there. There's the proof of the genuineness of the Christian faith. It's not the elite, it's not the powerful, it's, it's not the influential, even within the church. It is the kind of the rank and file that's going to show the power of the gospel. You see the middle paragraph in the right column. We do not live, see where it starts that, we do not live under Roman imperial rule. Slave labor is not the driving force of our economy. Women are not under patriarchal domination in our culture as they once were. Society has changed. But what is beyond dispute is that Western culture remains antithetical to God's will, hostile to the Jesus way. The imperial Caesar has been replaced by the imperial self. The American dream has been replaced by the Pax Romana. Western capitalism still trades in the bodies and souls of human beings. Culture obsesses over sexual freedom and material indulgence. Idolatry is pervasive. Autonomous individual is the ideal. So the question, you know, that we would face here in the 21st century is, is is this call for submission outdated? Is this, it works in the first century, but it doesn't work in the 21st century because of the political and social and economic realities that are so vastly different from then? Or is there a commonality? So that the counsel that is given by Peter is counsel that's given now into the 21st century for us. What do you think? Maybe I should stop on that one and ask. Because it is so germane to how we read the scriptures. Can we line this up? I think you've, I've now, I think, repeated this story twice in two different classes. Um, Eventually, you will have all heard it. 
Uh, uh, my last year at Wheaton, I went on a canoe trip with three of my friends on the Vermilion River in northern Illinois, and we were using the Girl Scout guidebook for navigating this river. And um, by the end of the first day, we were mocking the guidebook because it talked about three different places on the river that were dangerous, and we passed by them. We passed by what we thought was the old factory. We passed by the waterfalls that they said, you've definitely got to get out and portage around this waterfall, and we just went right through the waterfall, no problem whatsoever. And that night around the campfire, we were mocking the Girl Scout guidebook as being for wimps. The next day, we got capsized on a waterfall went by an old factory and we almost drowned. And I, we had just placed ourselves on the river at a different place than the Girl Scout guidebook. The Girl Scout guidebook was definitely right on. <laughs> and I wonder, you know, to me that's a working analogy for the scriptures. Do the scriptures line up with the realities that we now face? Is submission is this, you know, and another word for this submission to me would be a kind of holy indifference that works itself out in powerful ways. It takes the really long vision, the long-range view. For a wife to be submissive to an unbelieving husband for the sake of the gospel so that the husband may be convinced of the truth of the gospel. A bottom-up profile of what it means to follow Jesus Christ. I said I was going to open it up for questions, didn't I? And then I just kept talking. <laughs> if you were working for Wells Fargo, one of the 5,000 people who were let go because they were involved in creating customer accounts faking it, creating them without the customer knowing. And you're one of those 5,000 and you're a believer. What do you do? Okay, repent and very wrong. You're both right. Um, but do you become a whistleblower? Oh, while you're still there. While you're still there. While you're still there. Okay. Yeah. <clears throat> do you? What's difficult is we start self-talking ourselves and justifying um, why we need to stay in a messy situation uh -huh. and make excuses. So maybe we'll be salt and light, and maybe we'll fix the wells bar, but maybe someone will come by and ask. But it's in some ways, lack of courage to just lose our job and, and stick out there because we don't know. I think, like for me, I think what I would have to do is, because if I truly am trying to follow Christ, I would have to turn myself in, but not necessarily blow the whistle on other people. Hope that through my, my doing what is right and them seeing the way that I live my life, maybe that would make a change in them. One of the difficult things, I think, on that is it's the first account that you knowingly create, knowing that the client doesn't know, the customer doesn't know. Because by the 30th 
and the 40th, it's now become an easy habit. So it's that first account. And that's what that first night you've gone home and you've thought, no, this, this isn't right, is a very critical night. Because a week later, 10 days later, it's, it's going to become now a routine that you've become accustomed to. When your boss tells you just say no or make up an excuse... My first job was working in a furniture store in the back, getting stuff and putting it out. It was a really large furniture store. And um, the guy who repaired the broken stuff so that you wouldn't realize it had been broken, we had long conversations in the back with me saying, it's wrong. It's wrong. You're selling defective furniture to people. And he said, well, they'll never know the difference. And we argued back and forth on that. Uh, and he started calling me the holy man. Uh, that was my nickname. Uh, he was very senior. He was like in his 60s and I was a kid. Uh, but, Jerry? Well, in this case, as in all cases, or many cases, there's two kinds of whistleblowers. The one who has done it and has to decide whether to reprint and then blow the whistle. But there, there are the others, like Pastor Niemöller, mm -hmm. who saw the wrongdoing and, in his parable, didn't blow the whistle and feels, of course, that he should have. That's I am telling truth to power. And I imagine all of us can think back to situations where we wish that indeed we had spoken up and we didn't wish that we had been faster, quicker, wiser to have spoken up in the moment. And therefore, I mean, we're all part of that human condition that requires repentance uh, daily. Um, so I, I, Kim Davis, the uh, Kentucky clerk who refused to sign the marriage license for gay couples, what should she have done? Quit. Resign. Doug, how does that fit in submit yourself to every human authority? Well, you see, yeah. Yeah, that's what... Quitting would have. Pardon? Quitting would have I can't do what you're asking me to do. Right. Quitting would, would comply with submission here. Res resignation would be submitting. Um... You could go in and say, I just can't do this. Uh, can you find me another job? Uh, I mean, there's, you know, um, or pay me severance. Or I mean, there's, there's compliance issues that uh, one could, uh, could navigate here. Uh, I probably have done an injustice to you by posing this kind of dilemma question without finishing the passage. Um, Verse 21, to this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving an example that you should follow in his steps. What's really interesting, I think, the only time, what's one of the most famous passages in the Old Testament describing the death of Jesus? Isaiah, Isaiah 53. 
the suffering servant, the lamb that is led to the slaughter. That whole passage in Isaiah 53. The only place in the New Testament where that is explicitly brought out is right here in this passage where it talks about slaves being submissive to their masters as Christ was submissive. So you go to the cross. You go to the cross in a thousand different ways as followers of Jesus Christ. You had that conversation with Pilate that Jesus had. My kingdom is not of this world. This job is not my life. Your decision over me is subservient to God's decision over me. You have that kind of pilot exchange. It won't look heroic. And it won't feel heroic. But it will be of the same sort of dynamic as Jesus with Pilate. It won't be as serious... Now, Bonhoeffer, Niemöller, people like that, it became as serious as the cross. Literally, physically. Probably won't have that kind of dynamic for us in our confrontation. But So let me... Uh, verse 22. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins. These are direct quotes then. The quote marks from Isaiah 53, in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. I just find it amazing that the only place where Isaiah 53 is quoted and preached, as it were, in the New Testament is in the relationship of how slaves are to conduct themselves before masters. And it would seem that Paul already realizes that how you're going to undermine the system is not how the world would undermine it and how the world would fight it. But the gospel is going to undermine the system in very powerful ways, in strategic ways. My friend David Mensa um, in northern Ghana realized that um, all the fish were dying in the Black Volta. And they were dying in the Black Volta because the fishermen used DDT to kill the fish. They put DDT in the water, the fish would die, come to the surface, and then they'd sell them in the market. It's a very expedient way of fishing. David organized, went to the chiefs of various tribes on the Black Volta and explained how this was, this was polluting the river, it was killing the fish, and they would have no fish if they continued this practice. But this was a main cultural reality. The chiefs agreed with much persuasion from David and 500 volunteers were chosen to police the river. And any fisherman caught putting DDT in the river was fined. 
and it was a stiff fine. Well, some people in those villages hated David. One man by the name of Arbor um, just went around on a slander campaign of David, saying everything that he could possibly say and threatening David. Well, the volunteers and the chiefs held the line, and for a year, over a year, the river was policed by the 500 volunteers. And the fish started coming back. The Black Nile perch, which had not been seen for a long time, started coming back. And the fishermen finally came to the realization that they had been killing the fish off. They had been destroying their livelihood. And, you know, seldom does this happen, but there was a a convening of the tribes, and at that time, Arbor came forward and apologized to David for doing what he had done to him. I mean, seldom are you exonerated for doing the right thing. I mean, that just doesn't happen. and yet, this was a beautiful, uh, you know, uh, validation of the effort that been, had been made to save the rivers, save the river, and save the fish. Um, I guess Peter is advising us to be more strategic in our thinking and more gospel-oriented in our thinking, and how Christ has really changed the way we relate to culture. Now, comments. Pushback. I got next week to work with, um, so you can give me my homework for the week. Um, what do you think about this? Bottom line, oh, I keep talking. I, I'm sorry. Uh, I'm going to stop. <laughs> Comments. No, I think this has to do with the lordship of Christ. Something we don't hear talked about very much, but it's Lord. And Savior, but the Lordship of Christ. Over every sphere of life. Absolutely. Jesus is Lord. Mm-hmm. Thanks, David. Yeah. Tommy? Yeah, I mean it's it's you know, as foreigners and exiles as aliens, and it's like there's really, you know, first century to now there's really no difference. I mean, when you think about how they looked like aliens and you know, some people called early Christians you know, species, a different genus of people, how they didn't want to be involved with in Caesar's war, they were you know, against same-sex anything, against infanticide, a lot of babies getting killed, mm-hmm. they were against so many things, and they were you know, they were four um, different races and, and classes mixing together, they just looked completely different than the rest of that world, and now, <coughs> you know, now it's so obvious in just the political system where Christians are aliens in the political system. You can't, there are things that we agree with on both sides and you, we're, we're just out in the middle. We don't fully agree with one side. There's, you know, right, right. Democrats might be for one thing that we would agree with and then we also agree with certain things that Republicans do. So it's, it's almost like you have to send boldly, you know, choose what, you think you know who has uh, who's fighting for um, people and doing the right thing, and you're going to be sinning either way by choosing either side because there are going to be some things that 
you're not going to agree with, but you just have to be an alien and and, um, and and shoot. I mean, it's just it's strange. It's not. It's almost like we need to have our own party or something. You know. <laughs> I mean, you can't. We don't fit anywhere. Good comment. Thank you. Anyone else? We don't even fit completely uh, among ourselves. And that's what worries me the most. Uh, submit yourself to every human authority has got to be worked on a whole lot harder than we're willing to do in a few sentences. Uh, that is Briarwood. Uh, that is women at a time when women are just beginning to realize what they can do, what a difference they can make in this world. And Sometimes to their detriment, some of the younger ones. It's not going good. All right. Uh, that's worth talking out loud about, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, submit yourself to every human authority? Uh, that's not, not very clear to me. And maybe it is to you all. When in the Beatitudes, it's interesting to see how Jesus is the only person who's really fulfilled all those things. He submitted. He, you know, he, I don't know, all those things. He was disenfranchised. He submitted himself, and he was not blessed. He was not. It's, um, it's a hard thing. To we're do. certainly in the light of the cross. We're, ca- we're talking about a costly kind of submission, a radical submission, not just compliance. Not appeasement. But just a minute ago you said quit if you felt dishonored by a situation. Quit. Uh, Back to a woman who thinks she's having to submit to brutality or or abuse means get out of your marriage. The the quitting really had to do with particular specific... um, employment situation for a government official who's being asked to do something she didn't feel right to do. So I could see quitting there. Um, and I, a writer here on submission, you know, we haven't given careful thought to the different aspects of this, but for a woman to be submissive to her unbelieving husband for the sake of the gospel would not in any way in the first century as well as the 21st century, legitimize subjecting a woman to abuse, physical abuse, for the sake of that. Um, And it's interesting, our women commentators, Karen Jobes, who teaches at Wheaton College in uh, in New Testament, has been very helpful for me in working on this book, um, makes a strong case that Roman law protected the woman against physical violence as well. So this would be understood in this letter that women cannot be subject to that kind of treatment. So, um, but that is the closer scrutiny. The big picture is here. I want you to enter into this election season with a sense of peace and shalom because your identity does not lie in your American citizenship primarily. It doesn't, allow, uh, it doesn't rest in the American economic order primarily. It rests really in the identity that you have in Jesus Christ. That's radical. And that creates a strangerhood, a foreignness, an elect exile in your home country where you speak the language.
Now that's the underlying thesis here. And we got to quit. <laughs> Lord God, please bless my brothers and sisters in Christ in this week, in the culture, for your sake and for your kingdom. Amen. Amen.